I am the Edison phonograph, created by the great wizard of the new world. We're on the surface. Okay, we made a good landing. Greetings. Welcome to Wikisurfer, a kind of experiment in podcast storytelling. Basically, the format is this. Two guys, Brandon Fibbs and Kyle Sullivan, will each pick a starting topic on Wikipedia, crack it open, and see what hides inside. Moving purely on curiosity, hopping from hyperlink to hyperlink, they pick the best, weirdest, most wonderful stories possible. Happy surfing. If I have a theme today, Kyle, it's death. Or, more accurately, humanity's attempt to be remembered long after death has wiped us from the face of history. Throughout time, the very powerful and the very rich have attempted to immortalize themselves and to ensure their names and their achievements are never forgotten. And other times, the very lucky, or the very stupid, bumble their way into immortality. One such man is Elmer J. McCurdy, alcoholic, bandit, and human mannequin. Elmer J. McCurdy. Elmer McCurdy was born in 1880. As an adult, McCurdy was often so drunk that he couldn't even hold down a solid job. He bounced around from one trade to another, so it didn't surprise anyone when he took to a life of crime, robbing banks and trains. Unfortunately, he was as incompetent at that as he was nearly every other facet of his life. When trying to break into various safes, he frequently used too much nitroglycerin and destroyed the loot inside. After McCurdy and two accomplices mistakenly stopped a passenger train rather than their intended train, containing the $400,000 in cash they aimed to steal, he spent the night drinking heavily and eventually passed out in a hay shed. When he woke in the morning, on October 7, 1911, he found himself surrounded by a sheriff's posse. He opened fire on the men and was shot and killed in return. The end. Or is it? McCurdy's body was taken to a funeral home in Pahuska, Oklahoma. The owner and undertaker, Joseph L. Johnson, embalmed the body, a typical practice when no next of kin were known, and he refused to bury it until McCurdy's family paid him for his services. When no one showed up, Johnson dressed the body in street clothes, placed a rifle in its hands, concocted tall tales of McCurdy's prowess as an outlaw, and decided to exhibit the body in the corner of the funeral home as a way to recoup some of his lost money. For a nickel, you too could see the embalmed bandit. And that's weird, for sure, but it's not as weird as what happened next. McCurdy's body became such a popular attraction that carnival promoters begged Johnson to sell it to them. Enjoying his lucrative side business, Johnson refused. On October 6, 1916, two of Elmer's brothers finally showed up at Johnson's funeral home. They had paperwork from the local sheriff, ordering the body to be turned over for immediate burial in San Francisco, where they lived. Johnson had no choice but to hand it over. Except that these men weren't Elmer McCurdy's brothers. They were James and Charles Patterson of the Great Patterson Carnival Shows. 
McCurdy's remains ended up in Arkansas City, Kansas, where it went on display as the outlaw who would not be captured alive. Six years later, the Pattersons sold their operation to Lewis Sonny, who used the corpse in his traveling Museum of Crime show, which featured wax replicas of famous outlaws such as Jesse James and Bill Doolin, founder of the Wild Bunch Gang. In 1933, McCurdy's embalmed corpse was loaned to hack film director Dwayne Esper, who's best known, if he's known at all, as the producer of Reefer Madness. By then, 20 years later, McCurdy had become mummified, the skin hard and shriveled. Esper used McCurdy's corpse to promote his latest exploitation film by placing it in theater lobbies and claiming it to be a dead dope fiend, his ravaged body the result of his terrible drug habit. After Esper was done with it, the corpse was placed in storage in a Los Angeles warehouse in 1949, where it sat for 15 years. Weird, right? Well, it's about to get weirder. In 1964, McCurdy's corpse made a brief appearance in director David Frank Friedman's 1967 film She Freak, about a woman who leaves her life as a waitress behind to join a carnival of human oddities. The next year, the corpse was sold, along with several other wax figures, for $10,000 to the owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum and traveled around to various shows, including one at Mount Rushmore. Eventually, McCurdy's body was returned to L.A. with the complaint that it looked too gruesome and not lifelike enough to exhibit. It was finally sold to an amusement park in Long Beach, California, where it was hung in the funhouse. Now, I know what you're thinking. It can't possibly get weirder than that. Oh, but it can. In December of 1976, the television show The Six Million Dollar Man with Lee Majors was filming at the amusement park when a prop man moved what he thought was a wax mannequin hanging from the gallows. That's when the mannequin's arm broke off, exposing a human bone and muscle tissue. Only then did the park's owners realize they'd been sold human remains, not a mannequin covered in wax and paint. An autopsy was performed, revealing the man had died of a gunshot wound to the chest. Inside the mouth were ticket stubs to the various shows at which the body had been seen down through the decades. Radiographs of the mummy's skull matched that of pictures of McCurdy taken at the time of his death. Elmer McCurdy was a mystery no longer. He was returned to Oklahoma, and on April 22, 1977, approximately 300 people attended his graveside service. He was buried next to another outlaw, Bill Doolin, whose wax figure McCurdy's corpse had appeared beside more than half a century earlier. Two feet of concrete was poured over McCurdy's casket to ensure that this time his body would finally remain undisturbed. Okay, that's, uh, <laughs> that is really strange. <laughs> right? How crazy is that story? I, um, I'm suddenly moved to... I don't know, put in my will or something that I also get entombed in concrete. No one's going to know who I am. It's fine. But on the, in the off chance they might, that sounds terrible. Well, it's, you know, it, it's not like he was any great, you know, it's not like we embalmed Abraham Lincoln and then something weird happened to him. He was a nobody and he became a somebody after death. 
if he'd only been able to peek into his future and know that, by the way, somebody's going to be doing a podcast on you in 2018, a hundred years after you died. <laughs> Makes me wonder what his guidance counselor might have told him when he was in high school. <laughs> don't drink. Yeah, don't drink. I guess it, it, a couple of questions pop up. <clears throat> I'm guessing it isn't illegal to just own a dead body, right? Like, nobody went to jail for owning the corpse? I think that the laws were simply a whole lot looser, sketchier, or just plain not written. I don't, I mean, I don't know. They were, you know, he was, let's see, he was showing the body, you know, in terms of like the drug habit and stuff like that. That was in the late 40s. So at that time, when Esper was using McCurdy's corpse to promote his film, it was the late 1940s, and he clearly knew it was a real body. I don't think that the public did, however. Um, so I, one has to assume there might be laws about this, but by the time he was discovered to be a human being, most of these people, I assume, were long dead. I wonder at what point that was that information was lost, and like, how did they figure out who it was? Like, if they didn't, if the most recent owner didn't realize that they had a human corpse on their hands, or maybe they did. I don't know. Um, how did did the name get passed down with the transaction each time? I have to assume no. I have to assume that this that the name vanished probably right after about the time it left Johnson's funeral parlor because they didn't care. Um, as it started traveling these carnival shows, you know, they gave him uh, all these crazy names about the outlaw who couldn't be caught alive and these sorts of things rather than actually use his, his real name. So I bet pretty quickly after he left the funeral home, right about that time is where I think it completely left the train of, of, um, of history behind. That's a fascinating tale, man. It is. It is, however, a true story. And I want you to know, Kyle, you can trust me. I have a podcast. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. I guess we're going to move on to uh, my first surf, right? I can't wait. All right. I want to start my first surf with a question. In all of the things that humans have been doing over the last two million years, why, oh, why did we start recording sound? Like, it seems simple to us now, even a little inevitable, because we listen to recorded sounds all the time, every day. All over the world, recorded sound is ubiquitous, used for pleasure, for business, for legal purposes, for posterity. Hey, you're listening to recorded sounds right now. But what is that impulse? How and why did we decide to make sound recordings? Wow. Pretty haunting, right? This recording sounds like it was from a tape that was drugged behind a truck for a thousand miles over a dirt road. Is it supposed to sound like that? Um, kind of. And I can explain why it has that effect. It's actually the voice of a, a man, and I'm, I'm going to mispronounce his name because he's French and I don't speak a lick of French. Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville. Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville. <clears throat> In the clip, he's slowly singing the song Au Claire de la Lune. It's something like time travel, because this was recorded in the year 1860. That's almost 160 years ago, Brandon. And just for context, let me paint a picture of the world in 1860. <clears throat> 
Among a flurry of global activities during this age, in the United States, American President Abraham Lincoln was out campaigning for the White House job. The Pony Express had just begun its letter and package carrying service. In Britain, Charles Dickens published his first installment of The Great Expectations, and Charles Darwin had just published On the Origin of Species the year before. Western powers were still variously practicing formalized slavery, including the United States and Brazil. The U.S. Southeast had about 4 million people in bondage at the time, and it had only been three decades since the ethnic cleansing of native nations from that region. Nowhere in the world was there any electricity being used. There was no immediate access to information outside of a book or a conversation. There were no blue jeans, no cardboard boxes, no anesthesia, no car advertisements. It is an alien world to us now. As we sit here, wired up to the internet in almost every conceivable way, with glowing electric screens in our pockets and satellites giving us up-to-the-second details on weather and travel directions. And this voice from the past, this voice of a French printer and bookseller, calls out to us across the distance from that alien world. It is kind of like time travel. And so, for this episode, I wanted to explore some of humanity's earliest recorded sounds and the worlds they open up for us. This is a proper wikisurf, but it's also a little bit of a lateral surf, too. I began with the Wikipedia page for the history of sound recording. The history of sound recording. This is where I'd hope to find the answer to how and why recorded sound came to be. So, Edward Leon Scott de Martinville recorded his voice on what was called a phonautograph. This was the earliest known device for recording sound via vibrations that traveled through the air. Martinville invented it in 1857 as a way to study waveform patterns, not to actually play back recorded sounds. You see, Martinville was interested in stenography. He was trying to invent a way to record human speech like we do with writing, but without the polish and omissions and general editing, without the crafting that comes with writing. He wanted a raw, honest, true, unpolished version of events, something that could be written down very quickly and truthfully. He was also very interested in shorthand writing, on which subject he even wrote several papers. The phonograph worked by basically mimicking how the ear took in sound, ear canal, eardrum, the whole bit. The device had a cylinder with a layer of paper or glass and a thin layer of carbon black on top of that. Recording sound meant leaving a pattern in the carbon black coating. And you could really see the pattern of sound, which must have been revelatory to see for the first time. Let let me send you an image of what the recording actually looks like. This will go into the show notes, too, for those of you that are curious. That's beautiful. It's like, it's almost like a... Native American um, cave painting depicting literal, like, waves, water waves. Yeah, like a stylish uh, hokusai painting or something like that. And again, the phonograph wasn't designed to listen to recorded playback. It's just a way to study what sound looks like when you wrote the waveform patterns down. It was designed to be a form of writing, actually, connected with Martinville's interest in stenography. The raw audio files are, well, when converted to sound many, many years later, uh, a bit wonky. And there is a reason for this. (laughs) 
This is if I'm listening to somebody talking to me from beneath 3,127 pillows. <laughs> it's an accurate description. Uh, well, it's supposedly a song, although no one is quite sure what it is. Um, it was recorded in 1857, three years before the recording we first heard at the start of my surf. It's probably the earliest known phonograph recording translated into sound. But because it was recorded without a reference sound, like a tuning fork or something, modern audio engineers can't stabilize it like they did with the first clip. We may never know exactly what was being recorded in this particular 1857 clip. This wonkiness of the raw sound file is mostly down to the fact that the device was hand-cranked. Therefore, the rate of recording the waveform changed speeds minutely, moment to moment. Hand-cranked anything isn't nearly as reliable as the regular rate of performance most machines can produce, especially now. But there are ways to attenuate the device, even by hand. If you turn the crank slowly, you could record longer takes of sound. Too slow, however, and you lose the waveform of what you were recording. It was 20 years before someone else had the bright idea that you could take the patterns recorded with a phonograph and carve them into a metal groove, add a stylus and a diaphragm, and then reverse the process of the phonograph to get playback. And bam, just like that, we've got recorded sound. The best inventions happen by accident, don't they? I mean, the invention of writing came about not to tell stories and keep histories, but to keep track of who owes who money. A thing we invented to keep receipts eventually led to Harry Potter. Who could have predicted that? A clever man named Charles Crow. Charles Crow. Another Frenchman figured out how to playback phonograph recordings. Crow is an unusual figure in the history of recording sound, as he was a poet and a writer primarily. Or maybe he wasn't so unusual, looking back. He was a known writer in France in his age, but he was also interested in color photographs and sending graphics by telegram, a.k.a. fax machines. And he was the first person to think of the idea that one could play back recorded sound. Crow was an artist of sorts. Crow, in a modern sense, might have been the sort of person that filmmakers are now. He seemed very interested in using these technologies to reproduce what humans were seeing and saying, making images truer to life, making attempts to reproduce sound. If he had been successful on all these fronts, might Crow have been the world's first filmmaker, maybe? I think the filmmaking impulse was there. For example, Crow proposed a method for color photography that illustrated that it might be possible to take a photograph separately through specifically colored glass filters. The separate negatives that would come out of this could be developed to represent colors complementary to the ones on the glass plates. And if a carbon print of each color version was just transparent enough, you could stack the different color prints together, combining the colors, and voila, a color representation of the real world. Crow devised this in 1869, and it basically describes a version of the subtractive photography method, which is how color photography came into the world. But Crow wasn't the one who delivered it. Instead, a Louis Ducot de Warren is the one known to have brought the world color photography. Warren and Crow both independently developed the concept, and upon discovering each other's work, even presented their ideas jointly to the French Society of Photography on the same day. 
Crow conceded to Waran, despite having possibly come up with a paper trail for the idea first. And now, Waran is known as the father of color photography, not Charles Crow. Back to Crow's audio experimentation, Crow was going to call his audio innovation of Martinville's device the Paleophone. And he put his ideas about the Paleophone in a sealed envelope and left it with the Academy of Sciences in Paris to establish a paper trail on his idea and to give the idea to humanity. That was just the sort of guy he was, perhaps. Crow was a forward-thinking guy, willing to entertain what he might consider the craziest of thoughts. In another example of his worldview, he spent years trying to convince the French government to build a giant mirror so that the Earth could communicate with the cities of Mars and Venus. I mean, there are no cities there, yet, but people thought there might have been at the time, and Crow felt compelled to do something about that. That sounds crazy to us now, but you know what? We have telescopes on mountaintops all over the world whose only job it is is to gather information about the heavens and the planets, including Mars and Venus. And, funny enough, most of those telescopes have unusually large mirrors. I don't know how one gets to be a person like Charles Crow, other than nakedly following your intuitions and interests, no matter what others may think. I think I admire that. I think I try to do the same thing, you know, when you feel your intuition is solid, to try to not let the world inhibit you, no matter how crazy the idea sounds to people. And maybe Crow's audio innovation might have taken the world by storm if it hadn't been for one tiny setback, Thomas Edison. Edison's own audio recording device, the phonograph, was announced at relatively the same time as Crow's Haleophone. Crow's ideas fell into obscurity as a result. That's twice on two separate technologies that Crow had been eclipsed by chance. Most people couldn't even guess as to who he is now. At best, he is remembered for having lost out to Edison. Edison was a bit like Crow, a kind of wizard dreamer. But Crow was so much more, so much more of a mix of artistry and innovation. He had a much longer view of the ideas he played with, much more of an artist's inclination, perhaps a filmmaker's inclination about what he might have used those technologies for. Like a rocket quickly soaring to the heavens, Crow's life burned brightly and quickly. He died in Paris in 1888 at the age of 45. And so, we've partly answered our original question, how and why did the recording of sound begin? For Martinville in the late 1850s, it wasn't about playback at all, but a more honest way of taking notes in the moment. For him, it was about stenography and recording the minutiae of a meeting, a courtroom, of official functions. But for Charles Crow, a writer of Paris, the recording of sound was a deeper quest— and attempt to add color to the world, to deepen our understanding of ourselves. Unlike Edison, the consummate businessman, Crow maybe took a longer view of what recording sound could mean. Like many inventions, the intended application can be different to what the application actually gets used for, and recorded sound reaches far beyond stenography. That is awesome. That is beautiful. I, um, I confess... 
ever ever since I've been a kid, I have this fantasy that I play out in my mind all the time. And the fantasy is this. I'm in my car driving down the road and somehow I can bring someone forward in time to sit next to me. And all of a sudden it's, you know, and it's, it, it's generally related to, you know, someone who's uh, Henry Ford is all of a sudden sitting in my Subaru Outback as we're flying down the road. And he looks around at what he's encased in and at the cars flying past him and goes, oh my God, look how this evolved. Or to pull someone from colonial America and show them a video on my iPhone or, you know, these sorts of things where you just want to be the person to open someone's eyes and go look at what the future holds. I always have had that fantasy and I had the musical fantasy of the sort that you just described just a couple days ago. I was driving down the road. I was listening to some piece of classical music and it hit me. If I'd been born a hundred years earlier, I would not be able to listen to music. We take that for granted. It used to be that if you wanted to hear music, you had to go to a live recording. You had to go to a concert hall or you had to have, you know, some small band or something come. No wonder people um, in history would always go to concerts and always go to musical performances. It was the only way they could hear it other than in their own brain if they could remember it. Uh, And I just find that kind of stuff. um, I find that kind of stuff astonishing. You're, you're going to like the rest of my surfing then, I promise. What's funny is that I, I kind of have some of the, the, the same fantasy that you're describing about talking to past peoples, except Benjamin Franklin is at the top of my list. <laughs> oh, yeah. Benjamin Franklin of, of all people, the consummate uh, inventor of his age. So earlier on, when you were talking about that he wanted to record the oral impressions that were created— and use that as a form of language. Am I am I understanding you correctly? Uh, yeah. So literally, the machine would record, like, it's it's technically not recording sound waves, or I mean, it is, but it's not recording them as sound waves. But it would he would literally take that, and was it supposed to be in his mind like a new language, like you could learn the squiggles and the forms, and then be able to interpret what those were saying? That's exactly right. He he wanted to figure wow. out where the, the, the humps and the waveforms meant certain words or letters and just, like, read it back, you know. Wowie, wow, wow. Yeah, like, he wasn't thinking about recorded sound at all. Like, how boring of a start uh, of modern music can you get, really? <laughs> I had a lateral surf outside of the Wikipedia ecosystem to uh, a, a website called firstsounds.org. And it's a page that describes a collection of audio engineers who were the ones who interpreted uh, Martinville's uh, phonograph recordings. They were discovered relatively recently, uh, and these guys created some really snazzy software to interpret the waveforms on the paper or on the the black carbon ink or black carbon coating uh, and digitize it and then have a computer read it and that's how we get the sound that you're able to hear at the top of the surf and it was because of these guys's uh you know audio knowledge and engineering skills that they were able to even hear it so like it hasn't nobody has heard that since it was recorded uh until about 10 years ago which is pretty mind-blowing to me so in essence what you're saying is 
when I was talking about, you know, did this guy intend for us to be able to read this as a form of language, uh, they kind of reverse engineered exactly that and used the language to reproduce the sound as accurately as they possibly could. That's, that's amazing. Exactly. And a, and a guy who probably had no idea, just like your surf, a guy who had no idea what was going to happen to his corpse, this guy had no idea what was going to happen to his voice. And now his voice is officially the first human voice recorded. Completely an accident of fate. Wow. So um, let's, uh, let's pick back up on where we left off with your sideshow corpse. Yes, indeed. Well, I want to spend some more time with McCurdy and his fellow stiffs. And I should mention right off the bat, as Kyle has already said, please, please take a detour to our website or our Facebook page to check out the images that accompany what we're talking about. You will not be sorry. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yes. Old Elmer. Poor old Elmer. Elmer McCurdy is, as I mentioned, a mummy. And it was on that link that I clicked for my next surf. Mummies. No. Normally, when we discuss mummies, we have in our minds bodies wrapped from head to toe in garments and placed in massive Egyptian tombs. But the truth of the matter is, not all mummies are intentionally made, and many became so thousands of years before the Egyptians. First off, what exactly is a mummy? According to Wikipedia, a mummy is a deceased human or animal whose skin and organs have been preserved by either intentional or accidental exposure to chemicals, extreme cold, very low humidity, or lack of air, so that the recovered body does not decay further if kept in those cold and dry conditions. And that is a very important point. Not all mummies are made on purpose. In fact, mummies are typically divided into two categories, anthropogenic and spontaneous. Anthropogenic mummies are the ones we always think about, the kind that wander in and out of our horror films. But spontaneous mummies are those that are created unintentionally and occur as a result of perfect natural conditions. Let's start with the ones we know best, the Egyptian mummies. More than one million mummies have been found in Egypt, but most of those are cats, not humans. During the Middle Ages, they thought mummies possessed healing properties, and a common practice was to grind Egyptian mummies into a fine powder and sell it as medicine. They went through so many mummies, in fact, that popular substitutions were the sun-desiccated corpses of criminals, slaves, and people who committed suicide. This practice flourished until the 16th century. Another drain on Egypt's mummy reserve were painters, who were particularly fond of a shade of brown known as mummy brown, which was, you guessed it, made from pulverized mummy remains. Today, artists still paint with a shade of brown known as mummia, though no mummies were harmed in the pigment's creation. Remember all those mummified cats? Thousands were turned into fertilizer by the British. Egyptology was such a fad in Victorian England during the 19th century that aristocrats would buy mummies, unwrap them, and throw dinner parties so all their friends could take a peek. As you can imagine, this practice exposed the remains to the air, destroying hundreds. All right, we've spent enough time in Egypt. As I mentioned before, Egypt may have produced the most popular mummies, but mummies of humans and animals have been found on every continent on Earth. Here are some of my favorites. And remember, go to our website or Facebook page so you could see these 
they will knock your socks off. Most of the mummies in Asia are considered to be accidents. Take, for instance, Xin Zui, Xin Zui, otherwise known as Lady Dai, the wife of a Chinese nobleman who lived during the Han Dynasty and died in 163 BCE. She was relatively unknown until 1971, when workers digging an air raid shelter for a hospital uncovered her tomb, as well as that of her husband and they think her son. With the assistance of more than 1,500 local high school students, archaeologists began the excavation of the site. Lady Dai's body was found in the innermost of four rectangular pine coffins, each smaller than the last, and nested inside of each other like Russian matryoshka dolls. The corpse was wrapped in 20 layers of cloth and then bound with silk ribbons. Lady Dai's body. Was astonishingly, if a bit horrifyingly, preserved. Her skin was soft, even moist. Her muscles retained enough dexterity to allow her arms and legs to flex at the joints. Not only were all her organs and blood vessels intact, there was still blood in her veins. She still had hair on her head, eyelashes, and in her nose. The tympanic membrane of her left ear was intact. And archaeologists could easily make out her unique fingerprints and toe prints. She was so well preserved that doctors performed an autopsy, determining that she died in the summer, based on in-season melon seeds discovered in her stomach. Lady Dai's body and tomb are considered one of the most important archaeological discoveries of the 20th century. In 1993. Russian archaeologists discovered the remains of a 25-year-old Siberian woman near the border with Mongolia. The Siberian Ice Maiden, as she came to be known, was naturally frozen for more than 2,500 years in the cold permafrost. She was dressed in finely detailed clothing, and wore an elaborate headdress and jewelry, and was buried with six decorated horses for her otherworldly journey. Most astonishing. Was the fact that her left arm and hand were beautifully and intricately tattooed, in what can only be described as a very modern style, with animals, including a highly stylized deer. Many regions in Europe, including the UK, Germany, the Netherlands, and Scandinavia, have produced a number of bog bodies. These are remains deposited in wetlands composed of accumulated peat and other organic matter. That creates a liquid that is acidic, cold, and very low in oxygen. Basically, the perfect combination to tan skin and preserve internal organs. Many bog bodies are presumed to be the result of murder or ritual sacrifice. One of the most incredible is Tolland Man, discovered in Denmark in 1950 when a family was cutting peat and came across a corpse. It was so well preserved that they assumed it was a recent murder victim. Only later did archaeologists reveal the body to be more than two thousand years old, dying in approximately 375 to 210 BCE. Other than the fact that the man's entire body is dyed deep black, he is remarkably preserved and truly looks as if he only recently died. There is still beard stubble on his face. It is extraordinary. While his entire body was found, only the head now remains. Everything else decomposed. 
Doctors concluded that Tolan Mann was around 40 and died by hanging. Since his stomach remained, they determined his last meal was porridge. And his hands and fingers were so well-preserved that the Danish police did a fingerprint analysis, making Tolan Mann's thumbprint one of the oldest prints on record. Tolan Mann is one of more than 500 Iron Age bodies discovered in Denmark's bogs. The oldest natural mummy in Europe is Otzi the Iceman, discovered embedded in the ice on the border between Austria and Italy in 1991. Otzi lived between 3400 and 3100 BCE. Forensic analysis has revealed that Otzi suffered from blunt force trauma to the head, a cut to his hand, and had an arrowhead lodged in his left shoulder. So he was clearly involved in some kind of altercation, after which he likely bled to death. But his garments and a knife were also smeared with the blood of four other people, leading experts to believe that he did not go down without a fight. His remains were so well preserved that DNA tests have located 19 living genetic relatives, 5,300 years later. This next one is special to me because I used to live in Sicily, and I've seen the Capuchin catacombs of Palermo with my own eyes. Built in the 16th century by monks, the catacombs were originally designed to hold the mummified remains of dead friars. But over time, it became a status symbol to have your body placed there, and people were buried here well into the 1920s. There are nearly 8,000 bodies, 1,252 of which are mummies. The halls are divided into categories, men, women, virgin, children, priests, monks, and professionals. Some are posed, such as two children sitting together in a rocking chair. The bodies are arranged so that their loved ones could visit, hold their hands, and talk to them. The vast majority of these bodies are in, uh, shall we say, pretty rough shape. I cannot imagine visiting someone you love and watching them desiccate before your eyes. However, this was not the case with the most famous resident of the catacombs. Rosalia Lombardo, nicknamed Sleeping Beauty, a young girl of only two who died from pneumonia in 1920. Her father was so beside himself when she died that he asked a noted embalmer to mummify her body. He did so using a technique that was, for the better part of the 20th century, lost to time and only recently rediscovered. And I have to tell you, he did an extraordinary job. She is kept within a hermetically sealed glass enclosure, but she looks as if she is merely sleeping. If it were not for the tan discoloration of her skin, you could easily think she were still alive. Now, most North Americans assume there are no mummies here, but they would be wrong. Spirit Caveman, the oldest known mummy in North America, was discovered in 1940 by archaeologists who were trying to get ahead of mining companies by surveying possible archaeological sites in Nevada. They found the remains of two people. The middle-aged man, found deepest in the cave, was partially mummified, lying on a blanket of animal skin, and, according to radiocarbon dating done in the 90s, was nearly 9,000 years old. While the remains are currently at the Nevada State Museum, the local Native American community is petitioning them to have them returned and reburied. 
The Maori tribe of New Zealand would keep the mummified heads of their enemies, known as mokamokai, as trophies. They weren't the only ones who liked displaying the heads. In the 19th century, Europeans bought many of them, fascinated by the face's tattooed skin, and displayed them in museums. South America contains some of the oldest mummies in the world, many discovered in the colder regions of Argentina, Peru, and Chile, dating from the time of the Incas, roughly 1438 to 1532 AD. They are collectively known as the ice mummies. The first, from the mummy of El Plomo, was a male child thought to be from an upper-class family discovered at the top of a mountain after the eruption of a nearby volcano melted the ice that had, for hundreds of years, encased him. The second was Mummy Juanita, discovered high in the Andes and so thoroughly frozen that both her body and her intricate clothing was almost perfectly preserved. Last of the Incan finds were the Yuyuyoka mummies, two girls and a boy. Why all children? Why no adults? The truth is tragic. Each of these children were part of Incan ritual sacrifices, and most died of massive blows to the head. Large quantities of alcohol and cocoa were found in their systems, evidence that in the months and days before they are executed and left on their respective mountaintops, they were drugged to keep them docile and compliant. It's not technically true that no adults were discovered. Inca emperors and their wives were frequently mummified after death. When the Spanish conquistadors overran the Inca Empire in 1533, they were impressed to find many such mummies on display, often in lifelike positions in their palaces, complete with servants to care for them. Later, the Catholic Church took a dim view to this veneration, which they saw as idolatry, and confiscated the mummies, moving them to Lima, where the humid climate ravaged them, forcing the Spanish to bury or destroy them all. 2,000 years before the Egyptians began mummifying their dead, the Chinchoro people, hunter-gatherers living along the coast of the Atacama Desert in what is now northern Chile and southern Peru, had already developed fairly sophisticated embalming methods. Unlike the ancient Egyptians, who reserved mummification for royalty and the elite, the Chinchoro community accorded everyone, regardless of age or status, this sacred right. In fact, children and babies received the most elaborate mummification treatments. Today, the 300 or so mummies need to be kept under specific temperature and humidity conditions to prevent deterioration. Humidity causes an explosion of bacteria living on the mummy's preserved skin, which it then feeds on, causing it to break down into a black slime. Researchers say rising humidity levels in the region caused by climate change is putting all the mummies at risk. The Atacama Desert is also home to what may be the weirdest mummy ever found. Atta, a six-inch long skeleton that was so unusual, with a massively elongated conical head and ten ribs, that some speculated that the body must be an ancient alien. But in step science and ruined everyone's fun. Turns out Atta, who was discovered in 2003, was born only about 40 or so years ago and is actually a very human fetus, born premature and died shortly before or after birth. 
DNA analysis reveals she was ravaged by dwarfism, scoliosis, and other unusual mutations and abnormalities in her muscles and skeleton. A similar female skeleton was discovered in Russia in 1996 and dubbed Alyoshenka. While the bodies were similar, Alyoshenka had a head that looked like a helmet with massive eyes. The remains disappeared years ago, and only photos and videos of the corpse survive today. Okay, so I'm nearly done with this laundry list of mummies, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention several modern mummies, nearly all of which are low-down, dirty commies. After Vladimir Lenin's death in 1925, it was suggested that he be cryogenically frozen so that he could be revived in the future. While the Russians purchased the necessary equipment, they were unable to follow through with their plans and ended up embalming him and putting him on permanent exhibition in his own mausoleum instead, where he remains to this day inside of a glass sarcophagus. Today, Lenin's corpse is still regularly bathed, buffed, bleached, and enjoys a new suit every now and then. Back when he was still in favor with the party, an embalmed Joseph Stalin used to lie in state beside Lenin, but when the USSR began their de-Stalinization purge, he was removed and buried. Other red mummies on display include North Korea's Kim Jong-il, Vietnam's Ho Chi Minh, and China's Chairman Mao Zedong, who, I can say, having seen him myself, doesn't look a day over 125. We can't forget Eva Perón, the first lady of Argentina, made famous by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Madonna. She was communism light, and she was embalmed after she died in 1952 of cervical cancer and displayed in her own home while they determined where to inter the body. However, when a military coup deposed her husband, the government fled, leaving Evita in a lurch. For 20 years, no one knew what happened to her body. In 1971, it was revealed that she had been hidden in a crypt in Milan, Italy, under a fake name. Her body was flown to her dictator husband's Spanish house, where he and his new wife displayed her embalmed remains on their dining room table. Two years later, when Juan Perón returned to Argentina to retake control of the country, Evita came with him. The final modern mummy I want to tell you about is that of Jeremy Bentham, the founder of utilitarianism. Bentham left instructions that upon his death, which occurred in 1831, he would be mummified and his body put on display. His skeleton was dressed in his normal clothes, which were then stuffed with hay to fill them out, and his head, which was mummified in the same way of the Maori tribes of New Zealand, was placed atop it, beneath a large hat. Everything was then secured in a wooden cabinet and displayed in a busy corridor of the University College London. However, Bentham's head began to look meh, more than a little macabre over the years, and the real thing was placed on a cabinet floor between his feet while a wax version was substituted. However, Bentham's real head became the target of repeated college pranks over the years, forcing it to be locked away. Today, Bentham is wheeled into every college council meeting where, on ceremonial occasions, he is listed as present but not voting. He's even been rumored to have broken a tie here or there. It is really, really weird. There is every one of those were strange. That was crazy. Some are shocking insofar as it looks like you could have a conversation with the person. 
And then others, like the 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 first Chinese mummy I was describing, um, look like they're rising from a horror film. And when she's described as having skin that is still moist, you can see that in the images. I mean, some of these some of these pictures have we have we hinted that you should really go to our website and check these out. Some of these pictures are amazing. But a, a quick warning: some of these are pretty gruesome to look at. Uh, Lady Di, whom we're talking about right now, that that one is pretty disgusting. That that could turn you off lunch if you have a weak stomach. But there are other mummies that are, ooh, pretty tough to look at. True, true. Uh, the catacombs. Uh, that is a hallway of death that I'm surprised hasn't made its way into the horror genre more often. Rosalia, the child. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. She really looks like she's asleep, like you could just nudge her awake. And that's not just the picture. I mean, I've stood over her and looked down into that case, and at that, she just looks like she's sleeping. How weird is that? Man. It's really weird what we do with dead people. You know, like, it's um, it's never the same. It's always wildly different from place to place. And when you're talking about mummies, it gets... And then there's a whole new territory. <laughs> it's just every culture does it differently. You know, some some bury their dead, some uh, burn them, others put them high on on you know like Native American tribes who would bury their dead on elevated platforms in the woods. So many cultures do it differently, and yet, as these stories show, across cultures across the entire planet at different times, all throughout human history. Mummification, whether on purpose or accidentally, has been a thing humans do and, in some cases, continue to do. Fascinating. I don't know if I have any other comments about the mummies. Um, Then I think we should continue on to uh, learning some more about the birth of audio recordings. Okay. um, All right. So where do we leave off? The early history of sound recording— We've maybe figured out how or why the earliest attempts at recording sound got started. But how did recorded sound enter the public imagination? How did this cutting-edge novelty become a business, leading to the enormous industry that it is today? We left off with Thomas Edison and his phonograph. Uh, Thomas Edison's phonograph eclipsed poor Charles Crow's paleophone. Edison seemed to be much more of a shrewd businessman, and Crow was perhaps uh, more of the artist. All the same, Edison's phonograph was about to change the world. And it is through Edison's phonograph that we uncover how recorded sound entered the public imagination. So the phonograph worked a bit differently than its predecessors. Instead of recording the waveform pattern in carbon black on a cylinder like the phonograph did, and then having to engrave that back into a sheet of metal like the paleophone did, Edison's phonograph recorded the sound waves directly onto a sheet of tinfoil wrapped around a cylinder. This meant that you could play back pretty quickly, too. Well, relatively quickly. Whenever you can, you should always kick out the middleman. Here is the earliest phonograph recording that survives to us today, from 1878. It has been cleaned up a bit so we can make out what's happening. All right, so while this is still really rough, 
it's gone from something that, that can't even be discerned to something that is easily recognizable as music. The form is progressing. Uh, physicist Carl Haber and his team at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory managed to reverse engineer the waveforms on this surviving piece of tinfoil. As you can imagine, tinfoil doesn't last very long. Um, they did this all using computers and reproduced the sound without ever having to physically play the media back. This piece of audio was played before an audience of 200 people in 2012, and it was the first time since 1878 that anyone would have heard this. This recording was made probably within the first months of Edison inventing the phonograph. Uh, let me play you another sample. This one is from 1889, a little over a decade after the phonograph was invented. President of the United States, the third and American Congress in Washington, D.C. Benjamin Harrison. Wow. President Harrison. Is this the first recording of any U.S. president? Yes, indeed. Benjamin Harrison, 23rd president of the United States. He was born in 1833. And you're right, it is the earliest known recording of any U.S. president. You can already hear a difference from the earlier devices. The sound is a little bit clearer. You can, if you listen hard enough, just just make out what's being said on your own. Edison came to sound recording from what we could consider a more traditional place, from researching other sounds as opposed to stenography and writing. Edison wanted to capture the information flying around on the telegraph wires and telephones, both relatively recent inventions. Like, really recent. He, like Charles Crow, was interested in audio playback, specifically. Once Edison had figured out the ingredients for sound playback, he applied for a patent, which was granted in 1878. But reports were leaking out on Edison's work throughout late 1877 in newspapers and a magazine you might have heard of called Scientific American. Someone took a version of Edison's phonograph machine to the editors of Scientific American in December of 1877. This person said relatively little when he arrived. He placed the machine on a desk in front of the editors. He then reached down and turned the crank to operate playback and the machine played back a bit of previously recorded audio. It said, <clears throat> Good morning, how do you do? How do you like the phonograph? Needless to say, the editors were astonished that someone with the machine was Thomas Edison, and those editors were the first public audience for the phonograph. To me, that's a much more impactful story than any Apple news conference. Also, I have to say, having the machine speak for itself is a stroke of marketing genius. Here is another slice of that genius from 1906 this time. This is what you might have heard in a department store if you were shopping for a phonograph. I am the Edison phonograph, created by the great wizard of the new world to delight those who would have melody or be amused. I can sing <laughs> you tender songs of love. I can Isn't give you cool? merry tales and joyous laughter. I can transport you to the realms of music. Okay, this must have felt... I can only imagine that that had to be uh, akin to something like Arthur C. Clarke's Any any Sufficiently Advanced Technology Appears to Be Magic. Like, when you have never heard a recording before in your life and you walk past a machine that is speaking with a human voice, that had to blow people's minds. Yeah, it really had to have... (laughs) Uh, 
again, a really decent marketing ploy, you know? I, I kind of wish Apple would do the same thing with their new iPhones. Um, <clears throat> the very first phonograph started out rather crude, but it didn't take long before innovations were introduced. Although Edison has initially experimented with using a flat disc to which to record audio, he then later switched to a cylinder. Charles Crow also suggested the use of a flat disc, too. Despite this, a flat disc phonograph wasn't introduced until 1887 by an inventor named Emile Berliner. By this time, the phonograph was making a big impact on the world. A curious phenomenon was happening in the Western world. In large cosmopolitan cities here and there, phonograph parlors were beginning to open up. The first one opened in San Francisco in 1889, and here's how it worked. You walked into a parlor, and you saw rows of coin-operated machines surrounded by chairs. Each machine indicated a different recording, a different sonic universe for you to sample. You put in a nickel, had a seat, and used something like a stethoscope to listen. Many cities throughout the Western world would eventually have a phonograph parlor. In Paris, the parlors became quite luxurious. The phonograph was really something, and people were astonished at hearing recorded sound. I mean, think about it. We take recorded audio completely for granted, but people must have been drunk with the novelty of it. In fact, it wasn't long before Edison's phonograph was challenged commercially. Alexander Graham Bell, yeah, the, the guy who invented the telephone, had a phonograph reverse-engineered at the Volta Laboratory. He used wax instead of tinfoil for the physical medium and introduced other innovations as well. <clears throat> Here is Mr. Bell himself with audio reproduced from a wax cylinder. You are it was, uh, it was, I, I couldn't quite make out the beginning of it, but it was clearly someone saying Alexander Graham Bell. But I, I kind of laughed that he was saying it in the same way that when people go to foreign countries and don't speak the language, they're like, he was like, Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, hopefully he didn't really speak that way. <laughs> hopefully not. From this, the graphophone was invented. Patents were applied for, and the Volta Graphophone Company founded in order to sell units. Everyone in this new industry could see the promise of what was to come. And a whole industry based on capturing and reproducing sound, it was like taming lightning in a way. Although it would be years before audio playback would be found in every home, you could feel the promise of the industry during these early days. A small pool of players vied for power over the new medium. The Volta Graphophone Company would merge with another company called American Graphophone and eventually become Columbia Records. A man named Jesse Limpincott, who had gained control of American Graphophone, eventually bought the Edison Speaking Phonograph Company. Coin-operated graphophones were developed to compete against coin-operated phonographs. Stenographers put up major resistance to the new technology because, especially with more practical wax cylinders, the graphophone threatened to put them out of business. Eventually, flat discs won out over cylinders on practical matters, despite a great variety of different cylinder types emerging in Europe and North America. 
flat discs were easier to store and ship. Emil Berliner and his flat disc version of the phonograph became more popular. The discs were called gramophone records, and commercial sales started in 1892. Initially, discs were five inches wide with recordings on only one side. They were made of a kind of hard rubber. The hard rubber material gave way to a shellac compound. The five-inch size was eventually increased to seven inches, and they began making recordings on both sides of the records. By 1912, the recording cylinder fell by the wayside. The dominance of radio in the 1920s put the phonograph, the graphophone, and the new record industry in check. Many phonograph dealers were driven out of business, and the Great Depression later forced several record companies to go out of business too. However, what record companies that remained kept moving, growing, and improving the product? In the 1930s, a new material was introduced to make records out of. Vinylite, or vinyl for short. Vinyl records came to define the recording industry of the 20th century. They are but a slightly younger cousin of those first tinfoil phonographs made by Edison. And a record player, which I'm sure you've seen once or twice in your life, or maybe you even own one, the technology in that record player isn't a far cry from the first phonograph. It is a technology with some staying power. New versions of record players are being manufactured today with updates and innovations attached to what is basically a phonograph at the skeletal level. So that sheds perhaps a little bit of light on the connection between a few really smart people saying, let's try to capture and play back sound waves, to Michael Jackson's Thriller, which sold 46 million copies since its release in 1982. Once the technology was let loose in the world, there was a scramble to capitalize and innovate and out-innovate your competitor. Perhaps with all these personalities poised to take a stake of the emerging industry of recorded sound, it seemed like the whole industry might have been inevitable. Maybe so. But without winding back the clock, it's hard to say. And the public was clearly interested, or else there would be no industry. I want to play a bit of Odd Lang Syne, uh, this is recorded on hard plastic celluloid version of an audio cylinder in 1910. It's another little time machine for you to consider, and I just, I just love how haunting and how pretty this sounds. This is one of my favorite songs, and it's probably one of my favorite songs just because it's always played at a time when it's evoking family and holidays and the promise of a new year, and it is hearing it with that hiss is doesn't detract from it. It actually, in my opinion, enhances it. I think a great many people do. We now live in an age in which we can master music so flawlessly that, that it is completely free of any sort of like, you know, foreign oral artifact. And yet, why is it that I still love putting on an old vinyl record, dropping the needle down on the record, and then hearing that behind the entire thing? And I love it. It just, it almost makes it seem like a pure kind of music. I have to say, at, at first, I was 
amazed when you're describing these phonograph parlors, which like the machines themselves very much reminded me of the the early Nickelodeons that you would also like drop a dime or a nickel in or something like that and watch some of the earliest motion pictures. But and I thought, oh, how weird, a phonograph parlor where everyone would like leave their home and go to this place to experience this thing. And I'm like, no, dummy, we do it, too. It's called a movie theater. It, we just do the same thing with moving images. You know, it, it kind of, when I was re- reading through that, I kind of, maybe I could send a message to some hipster entrepreneur out there, but I don't know, maybe bring it back. Uh, I Honestly, I would go and sample a, a phonograph parlor or a, an audio parlor of some kind and just have a seat in a chair and sample some place that I can't get to. Pacific Northwestern Rainforest, maybe, or I don't know, a... I, I just think that'd be like going to a movie theater. There's something appealing about going to a place and having the presentation of the sound, you know, given to you or presented to you and and just being transported away. You know, like I know we have podcasts and radio and, and things like that today, but like, I don't know, there's just something, there's something magical about going to a movie theater. And I bet that magic can be recaptured for audio, maybe. I don't disagree, and I also think that a key component of that magic is that you're doing it with other people, is that you're doing it as a community exercise in which everyone's there to enjoy the same thing, and I think that enhances our enjoyment of it. I, I, um, I have to mention, and I was going to use this at some future date as one of my starting stories for this podcast, and I'm going to abandon that now because it just fits here too well. But have you ever heard of Bone Records? Uh, no. So Bone Records were, they came about in the former Soviet Union in the middle of the Cold War when the Soviets were forcing everyone to destroy any sort of Western music they had. And in the 80s, what some very creative, ingenious Russians figured out is that If you want to dub a record, the best thing to use are x-rays. And they would create, they would go to hospitals and either dig through the trash to find the old ones or there was a black market that traded in hospital x-rays, used hospital x-rays, in which they would then cut them to be the shape of a record, punch a hole in the middle, and then dub a bunch of of copies and then like under the under the you know in the black market spread Michael Jackson or ACDC or whatever around so that they could continue to listen to western uh, uh, music and a lot of these still exist and they look I mean they are x-rays you look at it through a light and there's bones and hands people preserved in these pictures and yet these pictures are also playing music it's it, it, it's one of those surreally wonderful things I've ever come across. And also deeply Soviet. <laughs> it's like very tough-minded people. And why? what would tough-minded people use to listen to sound? How about pictures of bones? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so where, where, where do we leave off with you? Well, for my final surf, I decided to leave shriveled dead people behind for good. I was interested in a place that came up several times in my earlier stories, a place of shocking extremes, a place where records go to be shattered. The Atacama Desert. The Atacama Desert. 
The Atacama, as we discussed in the previous surf, is in South America and covers a 600-mile-long strip of land along the Pacific coast. The desert encompasses a roughly 41,000 square miles, and it is amongst the most uninhabitable land on planet Earth, a place of unending, unrelenting rock and dirt. It is the driest non-polar desert in the world, 50 times drier than California's Death Valley. There are a number of weather stations placed throughout the region, and some have never received a single drop of rain. In fact, the evidence suggests that the Atacama didn't have any significant rainfall from 1570 to 1971. That means little to no water at all from the reign of Ivan the Terrible all the way up to the third manned moon landing. We're on the surface. Okay, we made a good landing. That was a beautiful one. Even today, the average rainfall in some parts of the Atacama is only one millimeter per year. One. That's the smallest thing measurable by your retractable tape measure. Your driver's license is about one millimeter thick. It's the thickness of a fingernail, the head of a pin, or a U.S. dime. In fact, the soil of the Atacama is so deprived of water, and thus microbial life, that NASA uses it to test instruments for missions to Mars. Organic molecules detected. The reason for this is because the Atacama is situated between the Andes and the Chilean coast mountain ranges, both of which are of sufficient height that they block rain-bearing winds, forcing the clouds to drop their rain and snow on one side of the summit, but not the other. This phenomenon is known as a rain shadow, or in our case, a two-sided rain shadow, since both mountain ranges act to prevent moisture getting to the Atacama from either the Pacific or the Atlantic Oceans. That said, exceptions do occur. In 2011, an extreme Antarctic cold front broke through and dumped 31 inches of snow on one area, stranding motorists in snowdrifts. In 2015, the southern part of the desert was hit with floods, which triggered devastating mud flows, which barreled through several villages and killed more than 100 people. Now, if you're like me, you're surprised to learn that there are any humans in the Atacama at all. But as we discussed in the last section, the Chinchoro culture developed in the Atacama between 7,000 to 1,500 BCE. Their descendants, as well as those of the Atacamino people, live here still, mostly in small villages. However, the majority of the towns in the Atacama are abandoned mining villages, about 170 to be exact. There's a lot of copper here, and even more sodium nitrate, the world's largest natural supply, in fact, used in everything from food additives to fertilizer and fireworks. It was mined on a large scale until the early 1940s, when German chemists invented a synthetic version. The settlements, many of which are no larger than a few blocks, turned into ghost towns. Today, many are national monuments, and in 2005, were declared World Heritage Sites by UNESCO. The most interesting is the town of Chacabuco, which, after Pinochet's military coup in 1973, was converted into a concentration camp, holding up to 1,800 doctors, lawyers, artists, writers, professors, and other prisoners. To this day, 
it is still surrounded by nearly 100 undiscovered landmines left there by the Chilean military. All in all, the Atacama sounds like a pretty miserable place to live, unless you're an astronomer. Thanks to the region's high altitude, bone-dry air, lack of light pollution, and more than 300 days of nearly non-existent cloud cover, the Atacama is the perfect place to house an observatory. Or, if you're the European Southern Observatory, two, La Silla and Paranal. Between them, they operate the largest ground telescopes in the world, ALMA, which combines the power of 66 different radio telescopes, as well as the Very Large Telescope, which is composed of four separate 8.2-meter telescopes, which combine to form the VLT. If that weren't enough, two additional facilities are under construction right now. Altogether, the observatories are on the cutting edge of studying supernovae, the formation of stars, searching for exoplanets, including finding the first rocky body within its star's habitable zone, and gamma-ray bursts, the most energetic explosions in the universe since the Big Bang. The Atacama is where I wiped out, Kyle, and I think it's a pretty great place to end my surf, too. For me, this desert is a synthesis of my entire journey this episode, containing the remains of ancient human beings lovingly preserved in an effort to allow them to transcend time and their own mortality, as well as improbable instruments which peel back the curtain of the heavens, feeding on starlight that is millions and, in some cases, billions of years old. Some of those stars died long ago. What we see now are mummies composed of photons. And that's where I went off my board. I started with Elmer McCurdy, a wild, wild west mummy, surfed over to the Wikipedia page discussing all the amazing mummies haunting our world today, and ended in the Atacama Desert, where many of said mummies now reside. I loved it. That was excellent. Uh, You know, the Atacama Desert has been on a list of places that I've been wanting to visit for a long time, but now that you've told me about them, I simply have to check out one of these ghost towns. Like, I imagine that has to be very cool to see, you know? Part of me wants to visit, and the other part says, you know, that hot and dry and awful of a place, I don't know. I may just stay put. I'm attracted to extreme environments. I'm sorry. I am I am as well, and um, I'm, I'm always up for an adventure. Anytime you want, uh, let's, let's hit the road, Kyle. <laughs> Did you see anything in your surfing about the mining towns, like all that kind of happened at the same time or had that been like a couple of centuries worth of uh, uh, of mining towns that, you know, people would just go out with high hopes and fail at? I think they all happened at roughly the same time, all within the early 20th century. I think they were all established um, like be- after World War One and up to um, like World War Two and, and later and stuff like that. It wasn't until the German physicist came up with the synthetic that that put the kibosh to it. But I don't think there was any mining there, to my knowledge, and I could be completely wrong, until um, like the, the 20s or 30s. Hmm. That's a, that's a fascinating place. I like it. Where are we going for your final surf? 
<clears throat> my final surf. My final surf. Okay. Uh, well, uh, previously we took a peek at how early recording industry was born, basically launching uh, from Thomas Edison's phonograph, and the public certainly seemed excited about recorded sound. However, this led me to some more questions. What were people listening to, and why? How did having audio playback change people? Did it, did it change society? Did anyone grasp the long-term significance of what was happening? And, uh, most curious, might there have been some pushback against recorded sound? Most recordings from the early days of sound playback do not survive to the modern day. Some of the mediums that they used just, just couldn't last the years. But I can tell you a little bit about what the actual products were like, the cylinders, and how people interacted with them. Typically recording cylinders, be it soft wax cylinders or hard wax cylinders, or the more permanent hard plastic celluloid cylinders, usually came in a box with some added cotton cushioning to protect the recordings. This is what the customer would see, touch, and feel when buying a cylinder. The packaging would have the company logo or name on the outside of the box. Oftentimes, especially in the early days, there was no indication what the recording actually was. In some instances, a handwritten slip indicated the title of the recording and maybe the artist. Only a little later in the career of the cylinder was the artist information and song title included more formally, sometimes stamped right into the cylinder itself. Good luck finding out more about that new favorite band you just discovered. Plus, with the earliest cylinder recordings, if you found a song you liked, you could only listen to it a few times before playback was impossible. Those earliest cylinders were slowly destroyed by the act of playing it back. French clockmaker Henri Laurier, Henri Laurier developed a style of cylinder slightly different than what was being used in North America. He was among the first to use a hard plastic celluloid variety of cylinder, a type that lasts much longer and can endure many more playbacks than the wax variety can. He also didn't label his cylinders much like the other cylinder makers, but he had his cylinders color-coded according to music type. Blue for songs, orange for instrument solos, red for fanfares, green for harmonies, and gray for hymns. So, for the budding music listener with a discerning taste, a Laurier cylinder was your best bet. The University of California Santa Barbara has a historical cylinder archive, which is fantastic. Uh, here, take a listen to a Laurier cylinder circa 1898 from the archive. See, this is, this is exactly what I was talking about. Something about the hiss just adds... It, 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 it makes the music have a time machine quality to it. The recording mm-hmm. have a time machine quality to it. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, the sound of warm nostalgia. <laughs> Well, people were definitely making recordings regardless of whether or not the final product was correctly labeled or not. And they recorded whatever they could. Anything. Everything. 
Here is a wax cylinder recording of a song done by some Thai musicians visiting Berlin in the year 1900. Beautiful. I love that you can hear in so many of these the movement of the cylinder or the or the disc. You can just you can hear the rotation in the quality of the hiss. Uh, here's another one. Um, uh, this one's called Ujingong recorded by a German anthropologist in New Guinea from 1904. How many pieces of music from around the world, much less languages, do we have preserved, thankfully, because those cultures and those languages are now gone? Indeed, it, it, it is, it's like a time capsule, time machine thing. And, and what's funny is that a lot of these cylinders, they went out to the public and they, you know, got put away in attics after a few years. And you know, there's a lot of them just still sitting in the dark in a box somewhere. And occasionally people do come across them. Uh, the Cylinder Archive at the University of Santa Barbara has made it its mission to collect as many as possible and to restore them and to digitize them. Uh, here's one more sample, which they house. Uh, this is by a musician named Ernest Pike. He's singing a song called Win Other Lips, and this was recorded on a Sterling cylinder in 1906. These are beautiful. There is something very poignant and melancholy about so many of these. I'd like for someone to cover that now. It's like you're just cracking the door a little bit and just peering inside, not even going fully through the door. It's It's like you're sneaking a peek into another reality. Yes, that's exactly what it's like. Thousands of these cylinder recordings were sold to the public. Many of the artists and tunes recorded are not something we'd recognize today, even though some of them are quite good. Each cylinder is a kind of time machine. We may not know the artists or the specific songs sometimes, but we would certainly recognize some of the styles of music. Blues, jazz, opera, and other categories started to emerge as fan favorites. Normally, outside of the new world of recording sound, songs were quite long. But since the recording cylinder and the first gramophone records could only record two to three minutes at a time, musicians started to adjust what they were performing in order to fit a complete song on a record. And I think, I think that maybe the length of your average song now, today, must be traceable to the song length of the phonograph days, yeah? 
That can't be a coincidence, I don't think. Musicians also changed their instrumentation. Since the recording medium was limited to only a certain slice of the spectrum that a human ear can normally hear, certain instruments, certain sounds didn't even register on a phonograph recording. Musicians also had to become perfectionists in their performance. In a live performance, a musician can be forgiven if they hit a wrong note or messed up their timing, but with a recording, well, that was forever. A wrong note stands out more in the playback. Clever engineers figured out a way to record multiple cylinders at the same time from the same recording sessions. More people could hear the exact same recording. The audience grew larger, more widespread. Popular music was becoming, finally, a thing. A band or a group could now become famous nationwide. That had never really happened before. The best performers, the most sophisticated styles of music could now be accessible to the average low- or middle-income person, not just the upper crust of socialites who could afford to go to the theater or a nightclub. And listeners began to identify according to music type. Jazz listeners, opera listeners, fans of banjo music. People could listen to recordings repeatedly, especially with the new hard plastic celluloid cylinders. They studied the details more deeply each time they played the recording back. This was also a brand new dimension, which allowed people to do something completely new, something we take absolutely for granted. People could now listen to music alone. Normally, you were never alone when a song was being performed. Musical performance was a social activity. The band was always there, and typically an audience of some size, too. To listen to a phonograph alone in a room by yourself, well, that violated a social norm that people didn't even know was there. And musicians could practice with recorded music, too, changing the whole dynamic for those learning music. The phonograph actually increased interest in learning to play music. But, however, not everyone was happy about all these changes. Some folks thought that listening to popular recorded music would diminish you mentally. Others thought it would destroy music as a whole. A curious quote popped up when I was reviewing how cylinders were packaged, something that steered me to a particular person who profited greatly and ironically from this new medium of recording sound. He was quoting Mark Twain on describing cylinders and phonographs as, quote, canned music. This was John Philip Sousa, and uh, he wasn't being very nice with that description. John Philip Sousa had a particular sour view on the emerging recording industry. In 1906, he submitted the following to a congressional hearing. It is a glorious quote. These talking machines are going to ruin the artistic development of this country. When I was a boy, in front of every house in the summer evenings, you would find people together singing the songs of the day or old songs. Today, you hear these infernal machines going night and day. We will not have a vocal cord left. The vocal cord will be eliminated by a process of evolution, as was the tale of man when he came from the ape. Um, Sousa practiced what he preached. He didn't like to conduct when he knew he was being recorded. And some of the earliest recordings of the John Philip Sousa band like this recording of the Gladiator March in 1898, which I will play underneath, was conducted by someone other than Sousa. In this case, a man named Arthur Pryor. And that's a bit odd, because there are many early recordings of Sousa's band performing. 
and Sousa's music was, ironically, very popular. Even today, his marches are still performed. The Stars and Stripes Forever, easily one of the greatest marches of all time and the most fun to play, I'll admit, is the official march of the United States of America. So Sousa's disdain for these, quote, infernal machines seems almost comical to me, sitting in the here and now. Sousa's attitudes leads me to wonder how writing, invented in multiple places around the world as far back as 5,000 years ago, it makes me wonder how writing was initially received, you know? Like, did people shun it at first? Were there John Philip Sousa's in ancient Sumer or among the pre-contact Maya who felt that writing was replacing something valuable in society? There is an apocryphal tale that comes out of the early colonial period of North America, of a Native American person making the claim that the writing and literacy he saw among European colonists was a weakness, in that it became a crutch for the mind. Presumably, you'd rely on outsourcing knowledge to a piece of paper as opposed to just remembering it yourself like a normal person. I have no idea if this story or claim is true or not. It's just something I heard somewhere. But it is the only possible criticism I can think of against writing and literacy, which, like the recording of audio, is a mind-expanding door into our true nature as a species. And that leads me to the final bit of question I have in regards to this surf. Did anyone really understand the long-term implications of this new technology? And to that, I can say, I don't know. Within the confines of Wikipedia and the various lateral surfs I had to take to get background information, I, I didn't bump into anyone who was looking at sound recording and playback as some kind of time capsule. Surely, though, there were people like Charles Crow in the world at the time who certainly must have seen the phonograph as something that will change humans. L let me get a bit philosophical here. In my view, the world is a thing that can only exist through perception. It is what our eyes and ears take in. That's it. That's the entire world. And for the vast majority of human existence, perception was fleeting. It was in the moment. What we knew about ourselves was very limited, with our furthest extent being whatever our memories told us and what our grandparents could remember for us. To understand ourselves, our true selves, through self-reflection as a species, we were limited to how far back we could remember. This paints a very shallow picture of us. Our ability to see a truer version of ourselves is only possible when we can record perceptions that can outlive memory. And so the invention of writing was the first time we opened a window of deep self-reflection, of perception of more than our immediate moment in memory. But writing, as incredible as that medium is, can be colorless most of the time. A robust, vastly important, but a single dimension nonetheless. It is my opinion, and this is my grand side thesis here, if you'll excuse me, that humanity as a whole wasn't really alive, wasn't really awake, until we could share perceptions through several mediums simultaneously across time. Until our record-keeping became multidimensional. I'd argue that the recording and reproduction of sound is a second essential moment where humanity really begins to wake up to itself. A more important moment emotionally than the invention of writing, perhaps. 
This very first recording from 1860 by a stenography person is a snapshot, a time machine that shouldn't exist, taking us to a world that no longer exists, allowing us to marvel at who we've become as a species in the intervening years. This is what multidimensional self-reflection looks like as a species. So let me recap where I went with this little trip down memory lane. I started with the history of recorded sound. From there, I was introduced to Martinville's phonograph and Croy's paleophone, and then to Thomas Edison's phonograph, which stole the ears of the world. I rode the Edison wave through the invention of the early recording industry and all the innovations and business maneuverings involved there. In that little area of topic, I found something as simple as recorded playback was changing society, changing how people interacted with and produced music, how they learned to play music, and how, ultimately, humanity opened a brand new door of self-reflection that continues wildly right up to this second. You told me offline before we began this that you were really excited about this episode, and now I see why. This was great. This was truly wonderful. I loved it. These, uh, in some ways, they are kind of mummies of sound. Ooh. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, mummies of sound. You know, I, I am struck also by the fact that we have all these recordings, and we do listen to things in private, and we do have these intimate encounters with music that are our own and that we don't share. And yet still, in this age, there's nothing quite like going to a concert or going to the theater and having music performed live. There's nothing like the thrill of hearing it being played with all those potentials and possibilities for mistakes, you know, with large speakers that the, that you can feel vibrating through your innards. You know, like there's just something about music performed live that is still, even even with all of our advances, uh, something we love doing. Yeah, that that is a funny thing. Maybe we consider it a more special uh, thing to go to a live music performance or to to go and listen to something with a group of humans. I wonder if because it's so ubiquitous that the social act is even more special. I agree with that. I think I think that's exactly what it is. To me, I can't shake how deep it makes our worldview. Like, I can read a biography about Abraham Lincoln and be fascinated by it. But if you played even the tiniest snippet of a sentence that he might have been recorded saying, I just, it's just so much color enters my perception of, of the man. And I wonder, you know, it, it, people became really excited about recorded sound. Obviously, the industry really took off, uh, you know, but I wonder if it's a personal thing. You know, like I've met people that aren't excited about music, um, generally speaking, that they just don't go out and buy records or do anything apart from what happens on the radio, I wonder if it's a special kind of person or if it's a universal quality. Like if you play something from that deep in history that, you know, most people would sit up and perk up. I don't know. I, I, I am one of those people who I listen to music constantly, but only certain kinds of music. Um, I've often joked that music is just not something that lights me on fire the same way that a visual medium does, that film does. Um, I listen to music all the time, but it is not exclusively, but primarily film scores. And it's been like that since I was a teenager. Uh, that's when I discovered 
scores and soundtracks. And that's still, uh, I own, oh, I don't know, seven or 800 of them. And that's still the, the, the primary music that I listen to day in and, and day out, creating like a soundtrack for my life. Uh, since there isn't a live band following behind me and scoring my every move. <laughs> it's a shame that there isn't. <laughs> oh, man. Well, let me ask you this question. Kind of like Martinville in his attempt to add to or replace stenography, and a bit like the accidental mummies that you mentioned, he didn't realize he was going to become part of the story of sound, of recording sound. It was an accident that he became involved at all, and now he's the oldest recorded human voice. How, how might you feel, in all honesty, if someone was listening to this episode, this podcast, a hundred years from now? Is it humbling? Does it change the way you'd approach material? Does it, like, uh, I don't know. Does it change your perspective on what we're doing right now? Yeah, it makes me wish I'd written something better. Um, it, you know, I don't know. Like, so part of you says... If you know something is going to be passed down, if you were guaranteed that like this podcast was going to become in some University of Santa Barbara collection, you would want to make it as perfect an object as possible. And yet perfect objects are not relatable. Perfect objects are not human like it's it's our mistakes, it's our foibles, it's everything in between that is what makes up life, and uh, and so in many ways it it sh- would and should be this recording, foibles and all. I agree, even right up to this very second. <laughs> well, this was great. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. And go for it. Welcome to the credits. French Pronunciation by Laura Fierer. Chinese Pronunciation by Li O-Chun. Thank you to the Library of Congress for housing original recordings of the marches of John Philip Sousa. Thanks to the University of California, Santa Barbara for the location of the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive. Thank you to FirstSounds.org. Thanks to NASA for various space sounds and the Apollo 14 Houston Audio Control Room Archive. Thank you to the following musicians. The Smuggler by Miguel Johnson. Brook Running Water by Wing Chun Quen. Haka Maori Dance by DL Sounds. A New Year by Scott Buckley. And a special thank you to Katie Boyer. Boom. Okay. Thank you.